everybody wants employees that think like owners. And I think a big way to get there is through empowerment. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, a veterinarian and financial planner. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist and money nerd. We are gearing up for the Virtual Veterinary Financial Summit coming up on September 30th and October 1st. Go to vetfinancialsummit.com to learn more. Our guest today is Bash Hallow. Bash is a practice consultant and owner of Hallow Consulting. He's a certified veterinary practice manager, a licensed veterinary technician, and an awesome public speaker. Bash, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So you have spent a ton of time working in veterinary practices and with veterinary practices. And most of our listeners have experience, of course, talking about money with clients, and we'll chat about that. But do you think we should be talking about practice profitability with our teams? Uh, my sense is probably not. Maybe there's room to talk about profit with doctors who are on production. But I think sometimes maybe practice owners or leaders have experienced a couple of weeks, months, or a year of great profit, and they want to celebrate that with the team. But my sense is that the reason that you had that period of time that you were so profitable is because team members worked together really well, or they made great recommendations to clients, or they were very complete. And I think that is what I would celebrate not the profit, which is sort of a byproduct of doing those things. And those things that I just discussed, working together, invested in your job, engagement in your job, is what really excites people about their work. So that's what I would focus on. If, on the other hand, you know, this I think happens a lot of times at practices, is that the owner or leader feels like they're the only person in the building that understands the value of profit. Or does anybody else besides me care about mm -hmm. how expensive it is to run this hospital? And your goal, I think, when you're having this profit discussion is to try to get team members to wake up to your perspective. But ultimately, I don't think it really works. I think you just appear kind of angry in those discussions. Team members feel at a loss. You know, they probably understand very well how important it is to be profitable and how important it is to cut costs. And they feel like they're contributing or trying to contribute to that. But for whatever reason, their efforts and the efforts of the other people aren't dovetailing. So usually I think that those discussions just sour relationships between leaders and team members. If your concern is to be more profitable, then why don't you hone in on a couple of ideas that you have for how the team members can do that and then focus on that in the meeting rather than a general discussion about profitability, which if it's coming at them from a negative perspective, I don't think really works at all. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So talking about profitability and production-based salaries, how can practice leaders have more productive conversations with team members about races? And how about employee benefits? Well, I think that this is a tough time for employers because employees are coming to them with pretty strident demands about how much money they should be paid. I don't know if there's a formula, one size fits all for this, but I'll tell you that I think companies are better off kind of outlining a budget for how much they can pay for each particular class of employee and then outline that at the outset of employment with the company so that everybody's understanding of what the expectation is for this level of employee is clear. 
Because once you start engaging in a dialogue with people about merit, do you merit a raise? Very few times do people walk away from that discussion satisfied on either side. So that's why I think it's probably better to have a policy in place where everybody who's employed here can expect a 2 or 3 or 4% wage increase per year or whatever it is you decide upon, rather than wage increases based on merit, which I think usually end up being contentious. The other thing that I could recommend is it would be helpful if employees understood the value of the overall package that they're being offered. So employers are putting a lot of money into benefits like health care, retirement, and the employees don't understand how much money that's actually worth, especially if you consider how much payroll tax that they're saving in some instances. So I think it would be helpful if you came to those meetings about wage increases with kind of a spreadsheet that showed them the real value of working there that wasn't just only about wage but was also about all the other perks that you offer them. Like even things like animal health care, which they probably don't understand, is you know part of the package and there's a lot of value to that. Those are the things that I would recommend doing to help that discussion, but certainly can be potentially loaded and important to probably really do your homework to make sure that you understand what you're about to offer and why you're offering it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want to unpack something that you said, Bash. It's interesting because you're talking about yearly raises across the board at 2 or 3% or whatever makes sense for that particular practice. And so are you thinking, okay, on our teams, we should really just keep the stars. So instead of rewarding merit, keeping only the very best people and then rewarding all of them and making sure that the raises are consistent rather than potentially having an environment where there's some favoritism going on? Well, there's other ways to reward your all-stars rather than with wage. So there's no reason why we couldn't bonus them throughout the year or find some other way to remunerate them, which may be actually better in terms of incentivizing them rather than because you're so fabulous, you're going to get $3 more an hour or whatever. It might be better to just give them bonuses along the way. And I don't think that my way, where everybody across the board can expect a certain wage increase, necessarily means that you're going to keep all the flunkies, or that by not rewarding by merit, you're going to select ultimately for the best crew. I just don't see that happening in our world. Maybe that's true in some other business, but I don't really see that's true in our world. As an employer, When you're faced with an employee, you know, employee B that's not as good as employee A, these people know what other team members earn. I still have to have a discussion with this employee where my side will be, you shouldn't get as high of a raise because of all of these deficits in your performance. And their point of view is going to be, you don't understand how valuable I am or how hard I'm working. And I just think that we don't terminate that employee in that discussion. We don't weed them out. We just end up retaining an unhappy employee who's not satisfied with their wage. You know, I've worked in academia for a bunch of years now, and they have that system where they have an expectation that they're going to increase salaries usually from 2 to 4% a year, which, again, which is awesome. I feel like it's great. So thinking about developing the team, and you were describing some team members as being perhaps more skilled than others or better at certain things than other things. 
What are your thoughts on the sort of level systems or tier systems that have been created at a lot of practices for credentialed vet techs and for vet assistants? Well, to be clear, when I was talking about how to discuss raises, I was talking about thinking about what your budget would be for individual classes of employees, traditionally client care representatives, assistants, licensed veterinary technicians, and doctors and managers. So I'm not sure that I'm on board within those departments having tiers of employees. I understand why you would want to do that. I understand that it may help you have a discussion about why this person gets more money than the other person who has the same role. This technician A gets more money than this technician B because a technician A is a tier one or tier three employee and the other one's a tier two. I understand why you would want to do that. But my sense is that a lot of hospitals, because they don't want to give that raise, resist promoting that tier one who has drive to become a tier two or tier three. They resist promoting them. And that disengages them. So if you're a hospital that's eager to promote and you're going to open the gate and allow these horses to run, terrific. But if that tier system prevents you from allowing that person to achieve a tier two and a tier three because you're reluctant to pay them that wage increase, I think it's a bad idea. I think it disengages employees. Okay. So it depends on how it's approached. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to talk to me a while before you're going to convince me that I need a tier one, tier two, or tier three employee. (laughs) You know, if your argument is, well, there's a certain amount of training that goes into that. You know, I think that we've got an overinflated sense of how good our training programs actually are. I've watched a lot of team members over my 23-year career being trained. And I'll ask a lot of audiences when we go have meetings about training. I'll say, how were you trained? Were you one of those people that were thrown into it? Or did you have a systematic sort of approach to education? More of a school-like approach to education. Everybody in the audience shouts, I was thrown into it. It was hell. And yet, (laughs) all of those people, despite the fact that they were thrown into their jobs, are the ones that are in my audience. They're the ones that actually have achieved the level to be in that audience, to be leaders of the practice. And when you look at how people learn in general, I'm going to digress here for a second, but I was at a Starbucks the other day and I'm watching this girl study and she's got her computer up and she's got like two notebooks and she's really enjoying writing in this beautiful florid cursive, all of her notes. And I remember, I remembered what that was like the first couple of days of school and you get all your books home and you open them up and you're going to do some notes. And then I was thinking about the process of how that supposedly makes us remember more. You know, she's looking at her computer, and then she's going to copy it down in the notebook, then she's going to read it, and then she's going to remember it better, I guess. But I suppose there's some proof that that works for some people. Interestingly enough, when I look back on my life, I can't remember a single page of notes that I've ever written in my life. All I've ever really remembered is the context in which I learned the thing. And mostly, it was a social exchange between somebody teaching me something or me watching do something. And there's a lot of evidence that sort of learning by apprenticing is a much better way to get it stick and to understand. And I think that you can experience that a lot in practices when you watch how we train client care representatives or you watch how you train assistants. Assistants usually are completely immersed in the medicine. 
Everything we teach assistants is always in the context of the case at hand. Whereas the receptionists are usually given some sheet of things that they have to remember or memorize or, you know, step two, learn about intestinal parasites or whatever we're going to teach them. So my point being that if your whole, I have a tier one and tier two and tier three, is for me to deliver a more systematic way of training individuals, not sure it's worth the effort. That's a fair assessment. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I can see the merits of it in the way that if someone is looking to have a strategy or an outline to follow to get to the next level and have some goals for themselves, but then... The other thing is I've also seen teams management especially just gets kind of bogged down with these tier systems and it becomes more complicated than it probably has to be. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about your multiplication tables or your ABCs. You know, we teach children A, B, C, D. We teach a little song with it because we think that might help them. Or I don't know how you learn to memorize your multiplication tables. I think they make a lot of children write multiplication tables over and over and over again. Not sure. I guess I remember that process. I don't know if that's what got me to remember it. You know, but would playing patty cake with multiplication tables with another individual improve our retention? Or having somebody do a one-on-one with us with those mnemonic things, I before E, except after C, certainly there's value in knowing that. But is that just, did you give me a handout for me to do that? And did you test me on that? What's the best way to get that into my mind? There's a lot, a lot, a lot of research on that. And we always go with that classical route of, here's your paper, memorize it. I'm going to test you on it on whenever, and then you can advance to the next level. It works. I'm not sure it works ideally. And I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean, I really don't know if it works ideally. I'm going to change the subject a little bit because you're making me remind of vet school and I don't want to remember when I had to sit down and study and couldn't figure out what was the best way to study and remember the material. <laughs> so on your website, while I was you know looking up information, it says that you believe in the power of an empowered team. What does an empowered team mean to you? Well, I really do believe in it. I believe that everybody wants employees that think like owners. And I think a big way to get there is through empowerment. And so I think if I were going to define an empowered team, an empowered team starts with being excited about what it is, this entity, this hospital that you are a part of, you're excited about what it does. You think that you're the bomb. And secondly, you think that your participation in that is noteworthy. You believe that your individual participation in this group really helps define how great it is. And I think that if you've got those two things in place, you have team members that start looking up from their routine work and looking at their surroundings and thinking about the practice and seeing the practice as an owner and taking ownership of the problems and the circumstances at hand and ultimately have a blast doing it. Because being engaged in your work, and I mean this, is a real high. You know, we talk a lot about work-life balance, and people presume that if they're unhappy, they need to work less. And I would say that that is not true a lot of the times in veterinary medicine, because you've got a lot of ways to do some pretty remarkable things. People walk in with this pet that they think is like a child, and they want you to help them, and you assist, whether you're the doctor, you're the primary you know, miracle worker, essentially, 
for that case, or whether you're in support of that miracle worker. That feels good. Problem solving, I think, makes us feel good when you figure that out. And working in collaboration with a bunch of like-minded individuals feels good. So when you have a team member, when you create a team that is engaged in their work and feel empowered to participate in it, tough to pull off. But if you can do that, you have solved your employee retention issue and you've solved your productivity issues. Seriously, I mean this. You've improved your happiness. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Totally agreed. Yeah, excellent points. So let's talk about how we talk about money with clients. And so what are some common mistakes that you see in practices when it comes to talking about money with clients? Well, there are a lot. So, you know, in my role, I often go to practices and I observe for like six or eight hours a day. And that observation is hanging out with the clients in the lobby, talking to them, asking for their permission to follow them through the cycle of service. And then I follow them in the exam room. I watch the exchange with the technician. I stay in the room if the technician leaves to go talk to the doctor. I stay in there while the doctor comes in and does the exam. If the patient is removed to treatment, I stay in the exam room with the client. Then I follow the client out to the client care representatives for checkout and then out of the practice. So if there are money discussions, I'm there to watch them. And I will tell you that many of them are cringeworthy. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Can I just tell you this story that leaps to mind? If you're a leader on this call and you haven't sat up front with the client care representatives, you need to do that. Because I'm telling you, what we expect them to do up there is damn near impossible. And the efforts that they're putting to do what we're trying to ask them to do is like epic. And so I'm at this practice and every time I'm there, you know, they try to do their best to kind of prove to me that they know what they're doing. I'm laughing because if I weren't laughing, I would cry because it's so tragic what some team members go through. So this guy walks up and the client care representative, these are young individuals. They're like 22, 23, female at the desk. And the guy walks up and she goes, so was everything okay with your visit? And he goes, yes, dead silence. So sensing that I'm there and that clearly this guy's experience was not good, she ventures, are you sure? And the guy goes, yes. Wow. (laughs) So then the poor client care representative has to scroll through the invoice. And after about 30 seconds of looking up the invoice, she looks up to the client. She goes, that'll be $873. (laughs) I mean, the guy's face flushes with anger. I mean, clearly he had a terrible experience. And now it's going to cost him $873. He hands over that card. She takes the card. She swipes it. She hands the card back over. He snatches the card back. She hands the receipt that he's supposed to sign. And he signs the receipt and kind of throws it in her direction. You mean you can cut the tension with the knife. And then she maybe says, thank you. He doesn't say anything. He kind of storms out of the practice. And as he does, as he's walking out, the dog, as if to apologize, kind of turns back and is like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. Like even the dog (laughs) didn't know what to do with the situation. And I can't do it here because you can't see it. But what happened next was really so illuminating for me. The client care representative turned to her colleague and she mouthed, oh my God. And it was so clear to me in that moment that those two had no idea what to do with that situation. And indeed, that situation 
would have been hard for even a very experienced team member to manage. I bring all of this up because you're asking a lot of times, you know, prices are high and some neighborhoods don't have the money to pay for things. And you're asking team members to walk into a room who don't even have the life experience having ever paid a $1,500 or $3,000 veterinary bill and counsel some 50 to 60-year-old man or woman about their finances. Even if they did have all of the knowledge at their hands, it would be a very uncomfortable dialogue for them to engage with with a client. So the life experience level of that individual is also important. And I think that another thing that really gums up employees is that they assume that all the client cares about is money. So whenever they're launching into the description about whatever the treatment plan is, they start rattling it off. So we're going to give Rye an exam, we're going to give Rye a catheter, we're going to give Rye anesthesia, and they start calling off all the various prices. In the meantime, Rye is presumably somewhere out of sight back in treatment And I'm sure that even the most money-conscious client is probably cognizant that what's happening with my pet back there, and is that pet okay? So assuming that clients only care about how much everything costs in a treatment plan is also a big mistake when we go over expenses with a client. So I'm not sure if you're about to ask me about how to do that. But if you are about to ask me that, let me tell you that when you're going to discuss money with a client, I think that you should call out the obvious thing. You're concerned about your pet, or this is my overall outlook for the prognosis of your pet, or this is how I believe your pet is doing, or asking the client, are you okay? I'm going to talk about the treatment plan right now, but how are you doing? Are you okay? Is there any reassurance that I can give you about our care here or how your pet is feeling right now? Do you need to spend time with your pet? Do you want to call somebody? Let's acknowledge how the client is feeling and acknowledge that we're there for the pet. And if you feel confident about it, assure them that everything is going to be okay, that I understand that this is very worrying to you, but we deal with diabetic crises all the time. We've got this. We've got a great plan in place, and I'm going to go over that now. So addressing that first, before you talk about money, make sure that that client understands what you're really there for and that you're not out of step with the kind of anxiety and concern that they have going with their pet. And the only other thing that I will tell you about going over an estimate is that somewhere along the line, they told us that we're supposed to list everything that that patient got today before we tell them how much it costs as a way to underline value. I, again, I think that we probably need to take that idea back to the workshop and tinker with it. Because if you listen to how client care representatives talk about it, or even assistants in the room, We're basically just reading line items to an invoice. It just sounds like you're all about money, I think. I don't think it really brings a lot of value. I was recently at a pricing seminar, and one of the instructors taught us to speak about services and their intangible value versus their tangible value. And I promise your honor, this is the last thing I'll say on the topic, because I know I've taken more than my time. But here, just let me make this last point. I could show you a catheter. You know that you see this tiny little inch and a half long thing? that has this little needle inserted and this plastic coating on it. If I showed you that and I told you that was 25 bucks, you would think I was a ripoff artist. However, if I showed you this thing and I spoke about its intangible value, like it is part of an anesthetic package that's responsible for keeping your pet safe, then suddenly $25 doesn't seem like so much money. 
And I would train my team members to go through packaged estimates that you have at your practice and think of both their tangible value and their intangible value and help team members understand how to talk about and underline the intangible value of what it is you're talking. I think that you'll find that the clients are more amenable to price because they better understand the value. So Bash, I haven't spoken to a client in a while because I don't do general practice or emergency work. But it seems like the best way to approach it is to familiarize with the client. Something like ask them how they're doing and probably give them an overview of how their pet is doing. But as far as the estimates go, it seems like you want more of a story. You know, something like, so right now we're putting a catheter on Fluffy because we need access to his veins so we can give medication more easily, blah, blah, blah. Is that a good way to present it? I think I actually like your way of explaining it as kind of a story about what's going to happen, the story of how we're going to care for this pet and bring the outcome. You know, the estimate is there for everybody to see. As soon as you put that estimate on the table, their eyes is immediately going to the bottom line. So I think the more sleight of hand there is to it, the more dishonest you appear. The best practices I've seen is where the doctor is able to tell the story about what is about to happen to the pet. And then the team member comes in with the actual line itemed estimate or treatment plan so that the client can see it. Because I think as soon as you have that paper out and that number's in front of them, the shock value of what that number is may prevent them from hearing the story. So I would tell the story and then ask them if they needed to see an estimate or explain that you're going to have the assistant come in and go over in more detail what's included in the invoice. And then I would just put the invoice down for the person to look at it, give them time, and avail yourself to any questions about it or offer that you're able to explain the invoice or the estimate line by line if they need it. But I don't know if we need to read it to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the way that I've seen it work the best in emergency practice is for me to be able to explain in some detail, this is what the treatment plan is going to be for your pet. And then go ahead and do whatever we need to do, whether it's delegating it to a team member who knows how to make estimates or whether it's me putting that together myself and then having someone else. So either a well-trained assistant or sometimes a technician go in and actually present the estimate. And it's also more efficient doing it that way. And that's one of the questions that I had for you, Bash, is who do you think ideally on the team should be presenting the estimates to clients? So do you think a well-trained vet assistant would be the answer to that? Or, Well, I don't think anything replaces, you know, as Willie said, I think it's a great way of thinking about that story of the veterinarian telling the story about what the next steps of care will be, the why, the why we're doing mm-hmm. this today. I think it's important to embed in that story. And then having that person who is comfortable or is okay with talking with clients about money, have them go over the individual details. But I want to say that there are so many curveballs that come at all of us on a day-to-day basis when it comes to going over treatment plans with clients. Sometimes they get mad. Sometimes they're sad. You know, They can experience a host of, of reactions, any one of which can be new even after 10 or 15 years of experience. So I think it's really important to tag team these conversations, to have your younger people hang out with the more experienced people and listen to these over and over again. I also think it's important to talk about 
some of the problems that you've had with going over treatment plans with clients. I just want to share two stories. One is, one time I was at this practice in the Rust Belt up in Western New York, and I'm sitting on the floor watching the whole interaction between the client and the patient. And the doctor has examined this chihuahua, and this chihuahua has like stage 35 dental disease. It's the worst dental disease I've ever seen in my life. And she's going over the dental disease with the client, and she says, now about your pet's mouth, I want to talk to you about dentistry. And when she did, the client looked up and smiled at her with a face of dental disease that could have rivaled the dogs. And I just thought, I mean, it was so ironic, like, okay, let's see how you're going to manage this, because you're going to about to make a recommendation for a $1,200 dentistry on the dog, and clearly the woman doesn't have the resources to manage her own mouth. I can't wait to see how this unfolds. I mean, that is a difficult conversation for anybody to have, and it's worth our while to discuss it in a group. And I'll share one other story. One time I was at this practice, and we were doing education about the importance of recommending dentistry. Everybody's giving me lip service that they're going to make these recommendations, but I can tell that something else is going on. Finally, one of the veterinarians in the front says, you know, I have an issue with making recommendations for preventative dentistry. Great. Now we're getting to it. Great. Tell me why. She goes, my kids go to school with some of the kids of the people that bring pets to my practice. And I know that those parents have to buy those kids winter coats at Goodwill. How am I in all good consciousness supposed to make a recommendation for a dentistry that I know is going to cost that person $800 to $1,200 when that parent is purchasing clothes for their children at Goodwill? Now, that is an excellent question for all of us to ask ourselves, because I'm sure that there's many variations to that story that our team members are having. So, you know, interestingly enough, the veterinarian doctor said, I'll take that. I'll take that. And I was like, what? He goes, let me just tell you something. We didn't bring this guy all the way up from New York to talk about dental compliance and not listen to him. So as far as I'm concerned, you don't want to make a recommendation. You're out the door. That was the wrong thing to tell the team. Don't do that. And I said as much of the team, I said, just erase that last minute of dialogue. You know, I just want you to draw a line from what it is you said. So you're recognizing a problem in the pet. You recognize that it could be a potential financial hardship for the client. Does that mean you just shut up about it? You know, and I think the obvious answer is no, we don't shut up about it. We've got to figure out a way to discuss it. That's great. Now we're really getting somewhere. Now we're all really learning about what our responsibility is to the pet and to the pet owner and how we can do it in a way that makes everybody feel comfortable. And these, they just have to be discussed, I think, in meeting scenarios so that we can learn from one another. Yeah. So going back to those difficult issues, we have gone over on how to talk with the clients about money. But I'm really intrigued about the team component and the conversations during the next economic downturn. Or not even a downturn. Right now, our prices are just going sky high. So does that mean that we need to have continuous conversations with the team about the prices? Agreed. My thought is that we are headed towards an economic downturn near the end of this year or beginning of 2024. I do think it's going to be more of a financial hardship for pet owners to pay for veterinary services. I do think that it begins with every person on this call going back and reassessing what sort of payment options you have available to your clients. There are new things on the horizon. There are health savings accounts that I know that Vet Billing is putting together. I'm not remunerated by them in any way, but I know that that is available to help offset the cost of veterinary expenses. I know that there's a company called Policy, P-A-W-L-I-C, something or other, Policy Advisors where they're kind of like a clearinghouse 
I don't know how their business works. I don't know really anything more about them than what I'm just telling you. But I have some clients working with them where they are trying to help educate clients about the value of insurance and they have a much higher compliance rate with getting clients on insurance. There are payment plan companies out there that I think that we've been screwing around with payment plans for a long time or wellness plans, but I think now they may reach critical mass. So you may want to have a think about putting wellness plans in place or see what's out there in terms of wellness plans. So make yourself aware of kind of the financial tools that you can talk to clients about. Try to get your team members to proactively talk about veterinary finance, either by having it on your website. It's a huge source of traffic, by the way, to have some sort of page on your website that discusses how to finance veterinary care. If you don't believe me, go ahead and start typing into your browser, like affordable veterinary care. You'll see all kinds of variations on that query coming up because lots of people out there are searching for it. So having those kind of things built on your website, on part of your new client strategy to get them into your practice, make sure that they come across that so that you're helping them prepare for it. Those are the things that I can talk about. And then all of the things that we just discussed, tag teaming these conversations and talking about the difficult ones in meetings so that people have a better understanding of how to approach some discussions. I'll just say this last thing. I had a parrot once. It was an African gray. And I tried to teach that parrot to talk. And I'd go up to that parrot's face and I'd be like, hi, Bombay, how are you? I got nothing out of that parrot. Then I got a roommate and the parrot watched me and the roommate talk. And within three days, you couldn't shut that parrot up. And I found out that in meeting settings, if I invite team members to tell me how they talk to clients about certain things, it's almost as though hearing that discussion out of a variety of mouths with a variety of styles helps team members learn better how to come up with their own wording for difficult subjects. Yeah, absolutely. I think doing those things and having those conversations in the practice can certainly streamline a lot of those conversations because it won't be the first time that everyone has had them. And I like your idea and your suggestion to have a page on your website that talks about payment options and what your practice offers. And I think that could also streamline some of those discussions as well, because you have a resource to point clients to. May I add that there are some practices that are big enough to have a CSR or an assistant who kind of specializes in that area. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful thing to be able to say, you know, like if you're having difficulty figuring out how to finance this, understandable. We have somebody on staff that's great at helping clients figure this out. Why don't you have a sit down with so-and-so? And there's, I'm thinking one practice, they just have like a little office that's off the side of the CSR station. And that CSR is able to go into that room with that client and help them navigate whatever they're trying to apply for, whether it's scratch pay or care credit or vet billing or whatever, helps them go through the process. So you can think about that as well. Mm -hmm. Very fulfilling work that, you know, helping clients finance their veterinary care. Yeah, that's a great idea. And it is something that larger practices would have the ability to do. And if you think about it, that is a role at human hospitals. They have people who are assigned to do exactly that. So, Bash, I want to talk about productivity a little bit. You've seen, of course, a lot of practices in your work. What's one of your favorite productivity tips for the practice? I think that there's nothing you take away from my lectures. It's the recommendation that you do what I do when I visit your practice, which is sit in the lobby with the client and follow them through the cycle of service. 
I have a bubble. It's probably somewhere on my website. If you look under communication and workflow in the age of stress, it's a blog on my website. There's a diagram of the cycle of service. And I was just at a conference recently and I put it up on the screen and you ask attendees, these are owners that have been in the business for 25, 30, 35 years. And I asked them, why do we see clients this way? And there's about a minute long pause as everybody in the audience looks at that diagram and realizes, I don't know, (laughs) I guess because it's the way we always have done it. And then I also asked them to think about that I could airdrop you in any practice in North America and you could hit the ground running because all of us see clients the same way. And that lack of innovation should alarm you that there's maybe opportunity to improve. So start with looking at the cycle of service. You could start there and looking at how much time each of those steps takes us to complete and ask yourself whether or not, given the fixed costs that you're spending to have that person or that patient wait at that particular station, ask yourself whether or not it's worth it. But I won't sidestep the question. The question is, what is the biggest productivity hack, I think is, and please don't kill me for those people that are listening, I'm going to say something inflammatory. The thing that I think that we could cut back on is that time that technicians spend taking a history. So I think that for how much time we spend doing that, we don't get a return on that time invested. So there's probably minimally, I don't know, three minutes, four minutes that we spend talking to a client. Sometimes as much as seven minutes, the techs will be in there talking to a client. And ultimately they come out And they're able to take that seven minutes and condense it into probably a 10-second summary for the vet, limping on the left leg, been going on since Tuesday, or whatever they do. And I just feel like it's not worth our while. And there are ways now to get that history out of the client that is so much more productive. Again, there's information about this on my website. If you look at that blog, Communication and Workflow in the Age of Stress, I teach people how to make their own history form that's built in conditional logic. And you can either do that on your WordPress website or in Jot forums. But now there's a company out there that is able to sync those medical history forms that are built in conditional logic. This means that one form fits all, means that if they say, yes, my dog is vomiting, means that the form automatically populates with additional questions asking them about how long it's been vomiting, et cetera. It can turn into a questionnaire about orthopedic surgery. It can turn into a questionnaire about rechecks. If all of that sounds too complicated, I promise you, if you don't understand it, you're going to give it to your 10-year-old kid and they'll explain it to you. It's that straightforward. But there are companies that are out there that can build these forms for you in conditional logic and then they will sync with your point-of-sale software. So I think it's going to be a tremendous boon to productivity if you can eliminate that history taking with the tech. That's just one of ideas. There's more on my website. Awesome. We'll definitely put that link to that blog in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, I definitely would love to hear more about new ideas and innovative ways to evolve in veterinary medicine, but we're running out of time. So what is the best way for our audience to get in touch with you? Thank you. Uh, So it's bash, B-A-S-H, hallow, H-A-L-O-W.com. You can visit my website. That's probably the best way. Those all kinds of contact buttons that you can click through for them to reach out. We'll put those in the notes. And, you know, please visit me at the conferences. I'll be at the Kansas City Fetch Conference. I'll be at Vets Against Insanity with Dr. Sarah Wooten in New Mexico in the fall. And I'll be out at Long Beach for Fetch Again in December. So if you're going to be coming to any conferences soon, visit me at one of those. Be absolutely sure to come up and say hello. I love to get to know people. And those are the best ways to get in touch with me in person or on my website. 
And you'll also be joining us for the Veterinary Financial Summit. How could I forget? It's because (laughs) you keep making these things virtual. And that's why I don't remember it, because I'm sitting here all by myself. If you would do it in Puerto Rico, where Willie is right now, like I keep telling you to do, trust me, (laughs) if you were saying, and you were joining us in October in Puerto Rico, it would have been the first one I listed, but no. (laughs) Amazing. So, Bash, that brings us to our last question. What is your best advice for our listeners? I think I already said it. You need to do what I do. Follow your client through the cycle of service. You know, a big problem with solving problems is getting out of your perspective. You got to come up with a new perspective. And to be able to sit where that client sits and walk in their shoes will be all the perspective that you need to figure out solutions to problems that have been bedeviling you for months, if not years. Do that. All right. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Bash. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good luck to everybody out there. Thanks, Bash. If you liked this episode, click the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.